Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. I'd like now to introduce you to Louisa Bailey, Dr. Louisa Bailey, PhD from Otago. You may or may not have heard of her, but she, or rather her case with the Employment Relations Authority, was in the news recently because she was mandated out of her job, a job which was absolutely unique in New Zealand academia, but she has been paid a sum of money by the Otago University because of her Employment Relations Authority victory, I guess you could call. Anyway, we will get to all that and to the process very shortly. But let's bring in Louisa now, say hello to her. She's staying up in central Otago, which is not a bad part of the world to be in at this time of the year. Thanks for joining us here on RCR, Louisa. So I said that you were in a unique position and in fact the only one of your particular profession in New Zealand. So tell us exactly what you did at the University of Otago. Oh, hi, Peter. Good to be chatting with you. Uh, so I, my employment was, I was an artistic anatomist and I was employed within the medical school to help maintain and look after the anatomy museum collection of objects. Uh, a lot of them People think, when they think about an anatomy museum, they probably think of body parts and human tissue and cadavers. However, there are many hundreds and hundreds of models that are not that. Instead, they are made from uh, paper mache, from uh, plaster, uh, they're painted objects, all sorts of materials are used. And these objects help explain anatomy regions and detail to students. So you're both a scientist and an artist then? Yes, it was a nice combo for me because I first studied sciences in the late 80s at Otago and then I graduated and then coming back in in the um, 2000s, I then studied uh, a doctorate of anatomy and my specialty topic, which I just really enjoyed doing, was uh, studying the errors in predicting a face onto an unknown skull. And sometimes that still has to be done, not often in New Zealand, um, but that gave me the opportunity to study hundreds of faces and skulls and look at the relationship between the skin surface and the bone surface. And so that, therefore, gave me the, the knowledge about what good data sets look like, bad or dirty data sets, and I understood what evidence-based data is when well presented or when poorly presented. And so, you know, um, as a result of that, I can read faces really well I understand their anatomy. I can easily tell whether a person is lying or telling the truth just by watching their facial movements. Um, some of our leaders uh, can read quite easily when they're talking, uh, whether or not <laughs> what they're saying is, is, is truthful or otherwise. Could give you some hints, but I don't think you need them. <laughs> yeah. When you talk about yeah. data then, were you, were you getting very close to the area of uh, biostatistics, were you? Yes, I was. At times I was. So I had to use appropriate statistics to analyse data. And in doing so, I had to therefore learn about um, uh, percentage of variation, about an accuracy of the data set. And in fact, um, I, I've listened to other research as well, and I understood um, uh, descriptions like relative or absolute error. Absolute 
or relative risk, which is uh, concepts that uh, yeah, that we yeah, became used to hearing about during the early days of COVID. So we did, yeah. we did indeed. So, like I said, you were the only one of your particular profession in New Zealand. But mm. uh, I imagine, as a consequence of being in a unique position and doing a particular specialised role at the medical school in Dunedin, your services would have been very much sought after, would they have not? Yeah, they were. Uh, I, I felt I gave them a good deal because um, on my salary, um, rather than having to uh, have the work uh, trying to find people outside of the university to commission to do particular things, I was on tap and I could re- repair or maintain any objects that had maybe been dropped or had been worn away from on surface detail. And I, I was also um, given free reign to design in collaboration with lecturers and and surgeons, new objects for learning. And that's really important still, even today, students going through, any health science student who uses the anatomy resource, which is at least 8,000 students a year need to go through that museum, um, can benefit from holding an object or um, learning how to use their fingers or hands well to help explore and understand what's going on in our real bodies. And you learn that first on an, on an object, on a model. 8,000 so 8, health science students. That's yeah. an extraordinary number because not, not too many of them get admitted to medical school or dental school, as we are very well aware in recent times. No, you're times. right. So uh, we're talking nursing school, physiotherapy, anyone in health science at all. So the polytechnic students come in as well, as well as students within the um, other health-related sciences at Otago. Uh, and, and even, you know, visiting lecturers, visiting surgeons with Poppin, or um, past students, because the anatomy museum is a is a beautiful place to go in. It just it, it kind of you walk in there and think, oh, I can learn something today. It's just a fantastic place for anyone who's a little bit curious. Okay, so you've got this career. You're highly academically qualified. You are doing a job at Otago University Medical School, which is very important. But then along comes COVID, and then along comes the mandates. And tell me, Louisa. Mm. What happened to you and why did it happen? Okay. Well, prior, to, as you know, before mandates were put in place at uni, we'd had a couple of lockdowns. And um, as an artist, and uh, I have a studio space at home, so lockdown time was not a problem. All I did was take appropriate work home and keep working on it. So, you know, I was in a very fortunate situation to be in. So I figured mandates um, of a um, this particular uh, medicine um, weren't, it, it just wasn't a, a medicine I wanted to take, a shot I wanted to take. Uh, by then, not with my biostats knowledge personally, I could see that it wasn't effective uh, because with the Omicron strain, we already knew, and in fact the government had told us by November 2021 that it did not stop infection nor transmission. So I was like, well, hmm. You know, I've always been taught to look at risks and benefits of anything that I take. And it's like, well, why would I take something that doesn't stop infectional transmission? And um, Omicron had already been shown in international cases to be relatively mild. So I was like, mm, I think I'll just take my work home again. And um, I requested to do that because they had some big projects coming up. So you took it home and you thought, well, that would be all right. I can I can not worry about I having well, to get I vaccinated. That, you know, I yeah, no, that's right. I didn't want to, and I, I was well respected for the, and regarded for the work I did. I always received you know, outstanding um, 
work recommendations every year. And uh, the, I, I felt that there were reasonable alternatives to me having the shots um, so I could continue my employment for them and go back to campus once or the fury was over because I predicted it would not, in fact, be as smooth sailing as the university was um, predicting because, well, you know, the Omicron virus, it doesn't really obey traffic lights. And you're talking a university campus of students coming in in 2022. And look, every year we have what's called the fresher flu. So my prediction was this year it was going to be the COVID fresher flu, as indeed it turned out. All the intended mandate um, kind of, you know, um, categorisation of people into green and orange and red traffic lights totally fell over because the students were there. So mandates finished pretty quickly. So when did Otago University then bring in the mandates? Was it for the academic year they of 2022? It, yeah, they announced it early December 2021 and they had uh, considered, they had done correct consultation with staff and they um, put forward results from a survey that staff, uh, there was a, a high percentage of staff who completed the survey. Now, that's a, that in itself is, you know, you need to look at that. How many, what percentage of staff of the University of Otago? The University of Otago employs about 10,000 staff in total. What percentage of the survey? I believe it was around about a third. That's 30%. Of that 30%, there was a high agreement with the survey questions. What were the survey questions? Well, the survey questions were three ceiling questions, I call them. So they were, I feel more comfortable if everyone in the office is vaccinated or um, I feel more comfortable for the students vaccinated. So that to me was a meaningless survey and I'll continue to say that because it didn't give any information. When I did my research at uni as a scientist, I was obliged and through the ethics, ethics committee recommendations and guidelines, I was obliged to provide clear information to anyone who wanted to volunteer for my um, my studies. I had to give them, discuss any risks that they might come across. I also had to give them the opportunity to withdraw at any time. And yet suddenly the university was going to mandate us with actually having a drug going into our bodies and we were not being given information around that that nor will we be giving, being given an option to volunteer out. Um, we were being given no option other than jabs, and that really concerned me ethically, and I think probably that's why, partly why I stood my ground on principle, um, because of my own ethics knowledge going through the PhD. I just, it didn't sit comfortably with me. I just wondered, at any stage during this time, uh, Louisa, did you talk to any other medical school staff, particularly, say, a professor of ethics about this, about what was going on? Yeah. I did, and uh, one of them particularly is uh, I respect their opinion and discussion highly. Initially, um, there wasn't much exploration from anyone beyond the narrative. The narrative was very forcefully given, However, as time has gone on, there is now more understanding that the mandate was a heavy-handed, imprecise tool, especially, uh, and, and other people I talked with too, we were concerned that the university, and this is, you know, the university, 
which is meant to be the critic and conscience of society, according to the Education Act, it's still in there, uh, was not considering other alternatives that were known by then by the business community of New Zealand, for instance, such as rats tests. They'd been already in overseas for many years, uh, many months, and they were shown to be a useful tool, and the university was not including that as another option for us as staff. So that, again, yeah, concerned me that we were being given very... We weren't being given options. It was a take, take the shots or you're out. That didn't sit pretty. And was that a case of uh, it was you take it or you're, you're gone? Did you have any opportunity yeah, to discuss matters with the uh, HR uh, department or with your supervisor or with your head of department or whatever uh, well, to say yeah. there are other options here? Interesting point. So I eventually got guided towards the HR department and I must say in my first interview... Well, it wasn't friendly. <laughs> it wasn't right. You, you are choosing not to be vaccinated. How can we help you retain employment? What can we do to help? It was the first statement to me in that interview was, right, so you're, you're unvaccinated. That's correct, isn't it? You've chosen not to be vaccinated. And I thought, ooh, ow, that's a little bit confrontational. I said, no, no, I'm actually just vaccine hesitant. I might take it down the track, but right now, no, until I see more evidence-based data about how what its risks are like and what its benefits are. And then on the interview went. And I'm um, yeah, it was quite cunning and I feel that it was quite an orchestrated attempt to get rid of me and other staff uh, in the ERA um, uh, case that day that I did that finally taped the uni to ERA. HR described me and everyone else who was in December still um, known to have not taken the vaccination to be back to vaccination hesitant, he called us the tail end, <laughs> which again is a slightly sort of derogatory term. It's like, well, we were 79 individuals who were questioning um, a very, very big stamp of, of um, request for mm, us. Authoritarianism, really. Yeah, so you say 79 oh, Otago University staff. Yeah decided that they would and not take December, the vaccine. There had been many more years. Had, we're still being worked with by HR, and HR did not show friendliness towards any, any one of us. I later learned of a colleague who did have a severe myocarditis reaction within two days of his first vaccination. He was basically pleading with the university. He did not want to take a second vaccination. He was stressed so much. He was... I think in and out to ED before Christmas three times with extreme heart palpations. Palpitations. He actually, he really did think he was going to die. Um, it affected his his marriage. Um, he was, he yeah. was actually became suicidal there. And yet the university still said, no, no, unless you get your second jab, you're out. And yeah. I felt that was morally wrong. But I think, yeah. I think having worked in a big corporate myself for many years, uh, mm-hmm. Louisa, HR departments do not care about staff. HR departments work for management, and that's the be-all no. and end-all of it. HR departments yeah. just really are there to do management's bidding, and they, they pay lip service to consultation. That's my experience of them. Well, you're right. And I, I was naive. I was an artist, a scientist. I was busy doing my work. And I really hadn't, until I came up against them, quite realised that that was indeed their role. And I think that's a great pity. I think that an HR department is, um, by having only that kind of like mission, is is not enabling a, a good work environment for a bunch of folks. No, but I don't think Otago University is uh, unusual in that respect and 
heaven knows what's going on there at the moment with their financial situation and the people (laughs) who have to either be made redundant or who are taking the voluntary redundancy. Anyway, that is uh, that's a story for another day. But 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 tell me, indeed, and it needs to be talked about. Yeah, what happened? Uh, once you were told that you would not have a job because you, you, you tried to say to them, I can do my work from home. I've done it from home during the lockdowns. Why can't I carry yeah, on doing it from home? So that was a pretty well, reasonable see, option, I would have thought. I would have thought so too, but they, they, they were cunning, you see. They never, never actually heard me properly. Firstly, they management, and, and not, not even knew my job as well as I did, management, unknown to me, decided on the timeline for two large proposals I put to them. That timeline I never was privy to. I only knew that they had to put a timeline on it when I got my predetermination letter, pre-termination letter. I was like, oh, well, who decided that timeline? Because I didn't talk about it. And then subsequent to that, I then had an interview with the head HR guy, and I said, I was very polite. I said, well, I I think everyone was very busy before Christmas when this might have been decided on and they were very wrong and this is why. And I gave him the big explanation. I said, the timeline was so short um, that you gave. In fact, realistically, it would be about eight times that length and this is why. And he nodded. Within six days later, I get my termination letter with the same timeline that they first did. So what do you do? Predetermined. I felt like I had no voice. Mm. Yeah, it was predetermined. Yeah. It was predetermined, and um, it was pretty to see that they uh, were only very lightly slapped with a with a wet hanky about all. Yeah, um, and that you know it, they they colluded behind my back. They didn't consult with me. Predetermined outcome. And funnily enough, um, there were some staff who did stay on, believe it or not. So there was disparity between um, how they treated staff members depending on their decision um, about how important or essential the job was. Basically, also according to, again, as you said before, they do bidding, according to the immediate management decisions about an employee. So it was all terribly, um, terribly, not, terribly inconsistent and not in accordance with employment law. And employment law um, had been tweaked a little bit. And I think October 2021 to say every employer must consider all reasonable alternatives until exhausted. And that's therefore why mine became a strong ERA case because they didn't they didn't consider annual leave or leave without pay or half time work, um, and nor did yeah and nor did they actually listen yeah. to me saying how long. So did yeah, you have so did you have any difficulty getting a hearing reasonably quickly at the Employment Relations Authority? It does take time. I had assumed again. I thought my case was so strong it would be sorted at mediation. I'd be able to roll on and everything would be finished. Mediation happened at the end of July 2022. However, um, the university was quite, with their lawyer, was quite confident that I had no case. And um, so we then had to roll further to ERA, ERA, as you can imagine. Had you employed um, a lawyer by this stage, Louisa? Yes, I had. I'm very grateful. A lawyer took it on, um, Mary Jane Thomas in Chicago. And um, uh, she, I was very grateful for her at the time of mediation. She was, could see that, the, the lawyer that the university was using was just waffling and doing circular arguments that were not helpful to anything. She, she stopped it. She said, no, we're stopping here. Uh, we, we can't resolve this today. We're going to now pull back and, and um, we, apply we, to ERA. We're going so to the ERA here. And you got, you got a hearing when? So you had mediation at the end of July. Where did you get in front of the ERA? ERA was July 
this year. So that was a year. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Yeah. The wheels of justice turn very slowly, um, but we all... It is turning, the wheels are turning slowly. Well, because they have got a lot of, um, they've got a, weight, a lot of weight on the wagon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But anyway, <laughs> you, you finally got to the ERA yeah. and, and your yeah. case was uh, reported on and you were front page yep. of the Otago Daily yep. Times once the decision was made. And it was yeah. on the surface a good outcome because you won, didn't you? I did. And that's the big, the big, um, yep, that's the big news moment. I did win. However, it was a water, watered down win from my viewpoint. And I shouldn't complain and moan, but nevertheless, I think it's important to point out um, the. The continued determination, I would say, even in the in the legal system, to just keep 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 these keep these wins as low as possible. In my instance, um, you know, that uh, going to ERA cost me just on twenty four thousand dollars. However, the university will now pay eight thousand dollars of that because they lost um, some of the twenty fifty three thousand dollars is taxed, and yeah, no more has to be paid. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful. A couple of people actually very sweetly have put some money towards that final bill. And that's very good of them, and I really appreciate that. Big picture, though, I would do it all again because I just, just felt it was such a, a wrongful action of the uni to do. And although I didn't want it to go as far as ERA, it did therefore mean it was a public, um, publicly exposed outcome. Most times the university is settling at mediation. No one knows anything because there's a confidentiality clause. Yeah, but the point is that you have lost your career. You can't go back yeah, into academia. You've, no. you've lost the job no. and the career that you liked doing, uh, that you enjoyed doing, Indeed. which was a very valuable service for the education of medical professionals or health professionals oh, in this absolutely. country. Oh, absolutely. It was yeah. crazy. No, that's right. Absolutely ridiculous. And, and have you been replaced? No, they actually um, quickly, I have been told, um, they didn't write to me about this, but I have been told that in the, within a week of me being terminated, they um, actually um, discontinued the position, which is most extraordinary, Peter. That position's been pretty much continuous ever since the medical school began in the 1870s. Oh, I see. So it's, it's not as if the job was created for you. It's actually an historical no. role that has been a valuable yeah. part of medical and health education for going back a, a hundred years. 150, absolutely. It's very necessary work because uh, the education um, of the students encourages handling of models and models at, at, over time are aware and need a little bit of replacement or, you know, that they break. And also... Um, certainly right now, uh, all my research on education and teaching to do with learning um, kept um, being the emphasis of that, that learning was that uh, students or graduates, say just medical graduates, are no better at observing the human body than before they had all these great um, marvellous uh, photography methods such as cone beam and, and, and CT scans, it still comes down often to that individual correctly observing what's going on in that body. Now, for instance, there were a couple of um, research projects I was doing with, and uh, one of them was with some dentistry lecturers, and uh, I was making a 3D silicon and hard material model of the face and neck so that dentistry students could help 
to, could learn to palpate using their fingers and have sense of understanding what they were feeling underneath the skin um, along the jawline and neck of every new, new patient. And that's really important for them to learn to do, to be confident to, to palpate a person who's sitting in a chair in front of them because they can often be the health professional who perhaps detects something unusual underneath the skin, um, a lump that isn't just a soft, palpable lump, it might be a hard lump. That might be the first indicator of, say, cancer in the lymph nodes. That health professional um, needs to be confident to be able to use their fingers to palpate, which comes back to student learning gone. You know, that, that I, I had to just abandon that project. It's still sitting on the shelf somewhere. And another example, I've actually begun designing in collaboration with a surgeon, a 3D silicon and using other materials too, model for palpation of the prostate region. Again, so that health professionals such as GPs could have practiced what they could be sensing with their fingers in that soft and hard tissue and perhaps realising that Something's indicating early stages of prostate cancer. Again, yeah, that, that, that model can't continue. So it is a great pity to me. We need best observation, best learning, best critical thinking coming out from the health professional. Training. Is the medical school using 3D printers to do the work that you used to do? Are they using modern technology well, myself, to, to take yeah. your job? Well, I myself was. I myself was. So, I, um, yeah, uh, it was, I was able to be at the cutting edge of technology, whether it be 3D printers um, from um, Daikon imagery or uh, silicon casting. We still need to use casting today for some of these models. Uh, we've got some really large companies now also doing the same sort of output of models that I myself was able to do, and they're doing very well internationally. My point of difference was that I could talk with the lecturers themselves and sometimes create a more bespoke model at least cost that was good for our local mm. situation. Yeah, I guess what I'm so, asking yeah. is that technology can't completely take the place of the job that you were doing. You need oh, no, the no, human no, touch right. to be able no. to provide those no. models for the medical education, for the health education. You're quite right. Technology is only ever as good as the person who knows how to use it. And uh, even when reading, um, even when reading X-rays or um, imagery of the body, you actually have better understanding if you also understand a real three-dimensional body. Anyone who's gone through the uh, medical school program, which includes dissection of cadavers, body donor program, will say, well, we learn so much by actually looking at a real individual body and understanding, therefore, what textbooks, what 3D technology, what any graphic imagery in that tech world was showing to us. Now we understand it. Really, really important. Okay. Yeah. I can I can hear in your yeah. voice, Louisa, that you, you loved your job, you were passionate about it, but now it's all yeah. gone. How then... Oh, Do you feel right. about yeah. life at the moment? You've won at the ERA. You probably made a little profit, but certainly not enough money to set you up for life. You're going to have to do something else to put food on the That's table. Right, Peter. How do you feel about well, things? I know. Well, you know what? I try. I must say, overall, I'm feeling really good because I am. I'm feeling really good about it because. I achieve, I could not have continued to work in an environment that was so oppressive. So narrowing, and I'm grateful I've got a good skill set, including my art making. 
I'm jumping more into that. And to be honest, um, through this whole process, I have connected up with a wonderful set of genuine folk um, who are also seek integrity and respect and, and are always questioning what the truth really is and seeking the truth. Um, my dad, he's still alive at 92, fantastic guy. He was a political reporter for many years, so he's 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 always staunchly supported me with whatever my stance is. And funnily enough, Peter, I guess it's extra cool through all this process. I actually met uh, fabulous fellow Hugh when I engaged, and so my life is taking a big turn, and I'm just grabbing the new opportunities, saying to myself, I'm on a new river, and I'll see what what brings me. I put a lot of passion and energy into that job, and I'll put passion and energy into new new projects and a new stages of new chapter. Yeah. You would have, in your previous career, then had interaction with a whole lot of trainee health professionals, trainee dentists, trainee doctors. During mm-hmm. this time, did you have any discussions with them? I know we talked about you talking with the ethics professor, or the ethics lecturer. Did you talk at mm. any stage to medical students about what they might be thinking about the concept of both mandates but also about the science of the vaccine itself? Uh, you know what? Social media was such a strong push to their own thinking. I've got four children myself knowing how my children were very reluctant initially to hear me present any alternative view to what they were receiving. Uh, They were quite adamant I was going to die. They were quite sure it was a killer virus and everyone would die. That was the... (laughs) Those those one o'clock press conferences, eh? Boy, did they put the fear of God into the population. They really did, and it was just tragic. Um, No, I decided in the end I simply had to walk my walk and... No one wanted to hear me say much. I continued to do my work at uni, and I felt that that was what my role at uni was, to do my work. And um, I welcomed discussion if, it, if there was a mind that was open to some discussion. And hey, Peter, there certainly are some students of that age group who are open to it, who are thinking. But they themselves, I know this from talking with them, they themselves have had to be really quiet about their stance because... People became so militant and so divisive in their thinking of others that to have even said, well, I'm not sure, really meant that you were about to have weapons of war shoved on you. You know, you're about to be speared to near death. Um, So, yeah, I was one of those who discussed it with with people I could, but otherwise pretty much had to put my head down because I still wanted to do my work. And I felt that eventually as has happened again and again in history, the truth will be revealed through evidence, but some people had to wait for the evidence. Sadly, that meant many um, many sad situations would happen before the clarity was gained. Mm, it's a bit of a worry, though, when the doctors of tomorrow are not thinking laterally, not looking at evidence, not looking at statistics, not even looking at news reports from other countries at that time in late 21, early 2022. It is a great worry, and it's even a great worry to me, and I guess some people will jump up and down at me saying this, it's a great worry that currently some of our practising doctors have also not wanted to at least even say to patients coming in, would you like to do some research and ensure you've got informed consent before taking the jab? And, and, And they didn't even need to present research to that person 
but at least encourage critical thinking about what is basically a medicine. It's it's appalling. Yeah. Uh, you've got a PhD in anatomy, and as you say, you have uh, a, a knowledge of biostatistics, a deep knowledge of, of biostatistics as a consequence of that PhD study. Uh, I mean, I guess the crudest uh, statistic we can look at in New Zealand at the moment is the all-cause mortality, the death rate in this country, which is at the highest mm-hmm. it has been in over a quarter of a century. What does that tell you? Mm. You see, the trauma is it sounds quite little. I think right now, what is it running at this week? 17%. And people think, oh, 17%. You know, if I was sitting at school exam, that meant I've failed. I failed dismally, 17%. But in real terms... When it's considered that that's a percentage that's compared with an averaged uh, five-year average, that percentage tells me that thousands of excess deaths are happening per year. This is deaths. That's extraordinary. And what makes it more extraordinary is it's not being officially talked about often in what I say is government media, includes most newspapers or other media outlets, nor is it from my understanding, being investigated for reasons why are we being told, uh, what are we being told? I've, I've tuned out to what we're being told because um, overseas data clearly shows us why we're having excess deaths and the reasons for them. But in New Zealand, what, what's the phrase? You know, basically it's telling us not to look, turn the other way, walk on. And even, you know, we've got some spokespeople, some strong voices that government has selected they keep talking, and they keep saying what are just lies. They keep saying, nothing to see here, just walk away, nothing to see. And, and that's, that's actually criminal. It's criminal. Mm. Well, I just find it quite extraordinary that uh, a death rate, as published by Statistics New Zealand, of uh, about seven, mm. I think to the end of June, it was 7.43 deaths per thousand of population over the last, uh, the last, co- the last year, rather, uh, that is the, mm-hmm. the highest rate since the late 1990s. Uh, and I just think that and, somebody's yep. got to say that this is, this is out of order and there's been a massive spike since that number. I quoted 7.43. Mm-hmm. That number was down at about 6.5 or just over 6.5 deaths per thousand of population uh, only five years ago. So it's been an extraordinary upward spike in just a few it's short years. It's an extraordinary spike. And again, you know, someone who understands statistics has to give it a real term. And the most, and one of the frightening things about that spike death rate of mortality is that young, healthy adults are highly represented as dying. So this is people sort of in, from their 20s to 40s, people who we don't expect ever to see a higher mortality rate. Well, basically, unless they're fighting in a war, <laughs> you know, <laughs> New Zealand... Um, um, army or whatever representatives, and this is not. This is within our own country, and um, it's frightening. And yeah, again, when from what I anecdotally understand, uh, when people do go to their doctors, worried they're being fobbed off. No, no, no. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to see. I don't understand it. It's 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 a it's a really really. Um, Damning lie. Yeah. I guess that's, I know you considered the words before you said them, but I think you're absolutely right. It is a damning lie, and I'm afraid this 
commission that we're having at the moment, this uh, commission of inquiry, is not going to solve oh, anything no. for us. So we have to have, we have to have under the term of a new government, we have to have a wide ranging uh, commission of inquiry up to the, the uh, level, I think, of Royal Commission. Uh, to actually oh, get, get the full facts. And, and anything short of that, yeah. and independence the key word, you're right, anything short of that is just not acceptable in this in this democratic acceptable. nation that we are supposed to live in because there is still way, way too much hiding of the truth going on. It's hiding. It's being hidden. I, I, the other day I was talking with someone and, you know, I was saying, hey, look, it's not unusual for... If you're talking a whole population, you expect some people to have an allergy or a reaction to a new medicine going into their bloodstream. And I gave the analogy of penicillin. Now, you're allowed to be allergic to penicillin. Apparently, statistically, in a population group, penicillin, um, around about 1% of that population will be severely, have a severe adverse reaction to penicillin. Great, they're allowed to. That's nice. So if it's 1%, in New Zealand, if we've got 5 million people, there'd be 5,000 people in New Zealand. 5,000 people who are supported to have, who have a known bad adverse effect to a particular drug, in this instance penicillin. They wear a medic alert bracelet and they don't ever have to receive it again. Yet in this instance with this particular um, medicine, shall we call it, if a person said, I've had a really bad adverse effect, they were told, but you still need to have your second. That's criminal. Mm. Yes, it is. And one of these days, God willing, something's going to happen in this country. I don't know when it's going to be. And I don't know who's going to have the political courage to say it has to happen. But it just has to happen. Those, Those death rates are there in black and white for all of us to see. And they cannot be fobbed off by the Department of Statistics offering a couple of lines of commentary saying, well, a whole lot of people died of COVID and we've got an ageing population. I'm sorry, that's no, just not well, good see, enough. No, that's the other erroneous... When you, the, 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 people talking about COVID deaths are still giving us muddled information there because when they say died of COVID, all that needs to be is that when they died, of whatever they died, and we know in the early days we had that um, report of someone who was in a motorcycle crash and died, but that because they tested positive for COVID, that person was put in the COVID death statistics. That kind of thing's still going on. So you can die of multiple reasons, totally unrelated to COVID, but if you were tested positive for COVID, you recorded COVID death. This is still happening today in New Zealand. That's, that's wrong too. So that means... When we, every week we get, well, I don't know how often now, I try not to listen, we get an update on COVID deaths. This is deaths from any cause that that, that person happened to also be positive for COVID. Mm. So it's very what I call dirty data. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't understand. It, 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 I keep watching the overseas situations. Australia's been more, the politicians, some politicians have been very active in their, in their questioning of the health narrative. Um, we're having to wait really in New Zealand to a certain extent on overseas investigations going on and then hopefully finally the lid opens up here. Having said that, I do know there's lots of lots of discussion going on under the surface. Under the surface of the um, public media that we're getting is a lot of other discussion going on and yay for RCR Radio and many other um, forums that have sprung up since all this because I think that we're being underrepresented. I don't think 
overall, New Zealanders are very loyal, and I think uh, during all this pandemic, we saw that they wanted to trust the government and they wanted to, you know, do the right thing. However, um, there's more uh, more frustration, more inquiry about what's going on than media is reporting in its official channels. Well, that's that's good to hear, uh, Louisa. I believe been... so. <laughs> It's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking with you. Uh, like I say, your case was high profile. I don't. Was your name ever published at the time uh, when it was in the ODT, or were you just uh, you were just a worker at uh, um, Otago no, University? I just, yeah, I think I might have just been called a worker, um, and that's fine. But uh, but I must say, I will say, it was a curious omission. I am a doctor of PhD, and it was relevant in my work that I was and. In the determination, the um, member of the ERA who wrote it up, having had it clearly presented to him that I am a doctor in my brief of evidence and during the day of the hearing, the two days of hearing, referred to me in the determination write-up that went on the public site as Ms. And I found that a surprising, um, deliberate Action. So yeah, I'm I'm Dr. Louisa Bailey in this context. I'm happy enough to be called all sorts of other names as well. But in this context, for the employment matter, I was Dr. Louisa Bailey, and I I think it's important that uh, anyone writing up a case like this uh, knows the correct circumstances behind the person. Yes, because there are yeah. the Otago Daily Times uh, makes a point of using. Uh, numerous Otago University academics, and they always get the the doctor title in front of them, even if a lot of them are spouting, in my opinion, a load of tosh. But that is a discussion for another day. (laughs) Oh, I tell you what, I know, I guess just finishing, I will say, you know, the university's got uh, a a load of tosh going on at the moment, and I'm, I'm watching with interest that we're starting to get quite a lot of um, ex-Labour ministers are being appointed to jobs within the um, important clock tower machine of the university, and I'm perplexed by that. I'm wondering what the university's mission is in the future. Um, we were, you know, I was. I'm so proud. I was very proud to be in, have the university as my alma mater, and I partly had the job. I really believed in critical thinking and discussion on campus. I'm not seeing that at the moment. I'm seeing um, a low morale. I'm seeing surprising decisions. I'm seeing more management appointments being made all the time. HR itself has 60 employees and a a continuous tap to legal aid. Uh, None of us employees have that. And I'm seeing a decrease in the number of academics. I'm wondering to myself, where is the university heading? Well, it's not just the decrease in the number of academics, it's the decrease in the number of students, which is the most important thing as well. Well, Well, look. I, well, yeah, but why would I, if I were a parent, why would I encourage my my child to go to university? I'd like to, and and it's great when a child is going to gain a lot from it. But would I want my child to go to university if it was again told, oh, to continue study, you need um, to have another injection or two? No, I wouldn't. I'd say, you know, and I think now that we have more knowledge about it, why would a, why would a young student... Um, wish to choose university. Should they? I think universities can be brilliant places for learning. Are they at the moment? I'm not sure. It's a good, great place to um, receive a number of facts and and digest them and then 
put them out again in a certain way. But I think um, the University Council needs to think really, really hard about what its mission as a, a, learn, a tertiary institution is for the following years to come. It should be a place that students wish to come. The student campus when I was first a student was such a buzz of all sorts of people, of ideas, of discussions. Critic was wicked, you know. Um, that's what we want. We want students to arrive at campus and be challenged to think, to accept differences between individuals, to be respectful as different opinions are put forward and to enjoy the learning experience. It doesn't appear as if it's happening at the moment. Louisa, I thank you for your time. Our very best wishes to you. Thank you for sharing your story. Congratulations on your win at the Employment Relations Authority. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, go well in your future endeavours. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Louisa. Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. <laughs>